Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art and craft of motion imaging. For more information about the project and filmmakers discussed in this episode, as well as production images, visit the podcast section of our website at ASCMag.com. This podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass, a five-day seminar taught in Hollywood. Learn more at theasc.com. Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. My name is Jim Hemphill, and I'm a contributing writer at American Cinematographer Magazine. I'm sitting on the Fox lot today with cinematographer Mihai Malemare, who began his career in his native Romania before being introduced to international audiences via his collaborations with director Francis Coppola. If you want to hear more about that, you can listen to my 2009 conversation with Mihai about Tetro. Since then, he's become known for innovative photography on films like Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master, which he shot in 70mm, and last year's The Hate You Give. His talent and inventiveness made him an appropriate choice for one of this year's most audacious movies, writer-director Taika Waititi's satirical World War II film Jojo Rabbit, which Mihai is here to talk about today. Perhaps we should start by giving people who haven't seen the movie an idea of what it's about. So uh, I'm going to put you on the spot right away and ask, how would you describe the story of Jojo Rabbit? Oh, uh, it's a tough one. If you don't know any of other movies that Taika did, I mean, for me, I think it's a love story more than anything else. And um, it's a story about uh, coming of age and seeing how your universe can be turned upside down by a love story. It's a very unusual story in terms of the tones it's juggling and the sort of unorthodox approach to history. I mean, I the best way I can describe it to people is it's a satirical World War II film, which, you know, I'm, I'm curious, because it's so unusual, what was your first response uh, on your first reading of the script? I mean, again, because I knew and I liked and I still like all the other movies that Taika did, I read it through that filter so um, like knowing what he did in boy and like reading reading Giorgio was like pretty much I, I, I could see what he can do with it and knowing how good he is with kids and um, I have to admit I mean it, it surprised me a little bit but not as much as, as you would think just because I knew and I really admired Taika's work. Well first of all how did the script come to you? It happened really fast. Actually, a day before having to leave to to Atlanta to do reshoots for The Hate You Give. So I read it overnight, and it was just a, such a tight window for me and Taika to meet. And I remember driving on 405 to meet him, and then I got a call from his assistant that he got bit by a spider <laughs> and he has to go to the doctor. And I remember my answer was like, oh, I guess he's not a vampire after all. <laughs> and then he had to leave to Prague the next day, so we never met in person and then while I was in the middle of the reshoots for the hate you give we had a, a long Skype conversation and a few days after another one and bottom line I came back to LA for only four days and then flew to Prague. And so what did those initial Skype conversations consist of? What did you guys talk about? I mean, we spoke about a, a, a lot of things. And what's interesting about it, a lot of times in, in interviews, you're you're expected to, to either show imagery or kind of show your approach. But it was more about like trying to figure out if we can get along <laughs> and uh, if we can 
if we can find right away things that we both liked, which I think it was it was great as, as an approach. And we never really nailed down too many things. We spoke about formats and, and things that we would like to, to try. And we, we end up doing a, a pretty extensive uh, camera test. We did like five camera tests, not including uh, makeup, makeup and costumes and, and, and all that. But we spoke about like, oh, maybe we try 133, maybe we try 185, maybe widescreen. Like, we'll see what whatever works. But I think we, we spoke like really generally and it was more about like, okay, let's see, this is how I work. This is how you work. You know, it's like it was more about like trying to figure out if we can get along, which was, I think it's the most important part of, of everything. Well, in terms of deciding on the aspect ratio between 133 or... 135, 185, whatever. What were some of the pros and cons you found of each aspect ratio for this movie, and how did you end up where you did? It was, I think, we were both really attracted to to 133, and uh, but the audience is not as used to that aspect ratio anymore. So we were trying to figure out if it will work for us framing wise, and just having two two people sitting at a table, like realizing uh, like how much more top and bottom we'll have to, to reveal in, in that aspect ratio. It was, that was the only thing that made us try more, the 185. Um, 240 seemed a little too wide for, for telling the story. So I think we, we kind of went back and forth from 185 to 133. And I think one thing that, that Taika really responded to and um, I wanted to try for, for so long was anamorphic 185. And there are a few ways to do that. And of course, like you can you can shoot two times anamorphic and then crop it and choose a platform, choose a camera that will give you enough resolution to do that. But by doing that, you lose the most interesting part of, a, of an anamorphic lens. <laughs> and one thing that uh, I read about, and it's a little bit more crazy technical, uh, it sounds complicated, but it's actually not that complicated. It's There was another movie that was done that way. It was Promised Land, Gus Van Sant's movie. And there's this set of, of anamorphics, which are not like regular two times anamorphics. They are 1.3 times anamorphics. And the history behind that, it's, I think the first time they, they, they came out where um, Panavision has what they're called the Ben Hur lenses. So when they when they came up with these anamorphic lenses for sixty five mil five perf, where that has a, a starting aspect ratio of two point So when you start from a two point with a one point three times anamorphic, you get a widescreen like even wider than two four oh you get something like two seven oh. But in the same time if you start from uh, like also the one point three is the Hawks especially they were designed for starting from 16 by 9 or from 16 mil and applying the 1.3 uh, degrees to go to a 240 image. But if you start with a 4 by 3 sensor and work with 1.3 anamorphic lenses, you'll get very, very close to 185. You'll get a 1.9. So with minimal crop, you'll get a real 185 aspect ratio and take advantage of, of the whole uh, imperfections that an anamorphic lens will, will, will give you. Mm -hmm. We'll go into a little bit more detail about that. Like, what yeah. are some of the things that using those Hawk 1.3 anamorphics uh, gave you that were right for this movie? Uh, a lot of things. I mean, I, I love imperfections, and and because we're we're using digital cameras, they're, they tend to be like really crisp. We we wanna tone down that a little bit and and just the way an anamorphic lens will will work in a in a close up and what what 
it will do to the background. And, and there's so many interesting things about anamorphy, flares and, and everything else. But distortions can be interesting as well. That being said, what's interesting today is that you can mix and match things very easily. So uh, a lot of times you'll become the, the, the slave of the anamorphic lens because you have to frame it in a certain way. You have to be careful with it. It's not like you can frame somebody like all the way to, to the edge or, or things like that. So that's why you, at least I tend to, to have a few spherical lenses, if not, if not a full set of spherical lenses as well, just, just for wider shots where I want less distortion or, or, or things like that. So what kinds of scenes in Jojo Rabbit did you use spherical for versus anamorphic? There were, I mean, there is another interesting uh, set that Vantage has, and they're called the T1s, spherical, and uh, they're supposed to be T1. Now, like any T1 lens, uh, it has a specific look wide open, but you can, some of them you can shoot it at 1.4 or 1.2 even. Uh, and we had a few, uh, a few scenes in Elsa's hideout where we really wanted to use candles and, and, really just the tiniest bit of light, and we use the T1s for, for those two scenes entirely. Um, we did have to use, for, for anything wider than, than, than a 55 for interiors, uh, we felt that the anamorphic was distorting too much, so we were going to spherical for that purpose. Um, but for example, like for, for the exteriors, what, what was interesting, uh, Hawk has this 20 mil and 28 mil anamorphic, uh, they're pretty great, but they tend to, they have a very drastic fall off, but that was really interesting for us to, to use those for the for the wide establishings and, and the exteriors. Both little towns where we, where we shot the exteriors um, were really well preserved and they didn't really have a lot of um, air conditioning on the roofs or, or antennas or anything else, but still sometimes the roofs were there, you could see that the roofs were really new so just a little bit of a fall off there would help a lot well since you mentioned the locations i, I was going to ask where did you shoot this movie and how did the locations inform your approach and your cinematography uh we we shot everything in in the czech republic um we we did quite a lot on on stage at barendorf and for the for for the exterior locations we we chose there were two little towns um, one of one of them was like two, two two hours away from Prague, and the other one was like forty five minute drive from from Prague. You also mentioned the sort of hideout scenes, with, which when I was watching the movie, you know, the interesting thing about this movie is it has a sort of epic sweep and scope to a lot of it, but then you've got these extremely cramped, confined spaces where the girl is hiding out in the house and. Uh, I was wondering what some of the challenges were in terms of shooting that, how you shot in the lit that material. It it was, I mean, uh, it, it's always tricky when you're on uh, on stage because you think that uh, a certain approach will get you to a pretty realistic look, but then you have to deal with windows and what's outside the windows <laughs> and, and all that. And now Elsa's hideout didn't have a, I think we had like two or three portholes and we were thinking like, okay, how would the daytime look through? Through those, or uh, how do we know? Like nighttime, what what would she use? A candle, uh, you know. So it's it, it's it's always strange. But on the other hand, being on on stage, you can move walls up to a, what up up to an extent, and you can find ways to squeeze the camera in, in certain positions that 
uh, a real location won't allow you to. Yeah, I mean, ironically, I read somewhere that the stage that you shot on was a stage that back in World War II was used for Nazi propaganda films. I mean, were you aware of that history? We, you... we were, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting back to some of your initial conversations with Taika and your prep, I'm curious, what kinds of visual references did you have for this movie in terms of photographs or other films? What kinds of things were you looking at and sharing with Taika to determine I the look? There are moments where you, you want to use uh, uh, other movies as references, and it, it's great, but I, I really like still photography so much, and I like to print things, and I, I feel that uh, what what really draws me into, into still photography is the, the fact that like a really good still photography is meant to be looked at for hours uh, versus a still from a film that it's supposed to work in sequence with others so that's why i think i'm more attractive to to stills and um i remember the first thing i i started researching and printing um because i love still photography so much i i put together i think almost like 60 or 70 or even more uh stills from from the magnum agency from the world war ii and all these photos like bresson and dono and kappa and like only stills with kids during the during the war and like that kind of created the the whole atmosphere like even if they were black and white like it there was something really interesting about them because you could see kids playing and nothing seemed wrong until you see like oh wait like they're there's like a pile of unexploded bombs they're sitting on or they they are in something that looks like a playground but everybody's wearing gas masks like there were there were so many contrasts and and things there as and by just by just watching those photos we could feel that that can be an interesting interesting visual reference for for us and then then i remember printing a lot of a lot of stills and it was more about kind of breaking down scenes and kind of a certain look for for each scene and i'm i'm using either still photographers that i really like and uh, and know or i'm just like going on on flickr and find amazing stills from from unknown photographers that that can be an, an amazing an amazing reference i remember one that was with the uh, that's that's how we came up with the idea of, of the double door for the bathroom because uh, there was there was a steel we we found and it was like oh my god it looks so much in more interesting to have the double door which even if it's not necessarily real but the the double door with glass gave us that perfect opening to see uh, Elsa's hand or to see Rosie through that and still have Roman framed on the side. It's interesting because when I think of still photography from World War Two, I generally think of black and white images, but one of the striking things about this movie is it has a very vibrant, uh, vivid use of color. And I was wondering if you could talk about the approach to color that you and the production designer, Rob Vincent, took, uh, because it's, it, it, it isn't the kind of thing that you usually associate with this kind of subject matter. It's it's interesting. I remember, and it didn't it didn't happen for, for Jojo. I remember, it, um, I think maybe for, for Youth Without Youth when I was doing some, some research, uh, and I, I found, um, I think there is a documentary with, uh, with color uh, footage from World War II. And then I, I looked at some stills and I remember that kind of stuck in my head. And when I read the script, that was the first thing I thought about. It's like, it's, how, it's funny how our perception, because we were used to so much black and white footage from World War II, uh, uh, 
we tend to to go that route and go with with less saturation and and try to do it that way but i think in my mind was that i would like to try that and then what was interesting about it is that from all departments it came kind of the same idea uh, came to life because we we saw some samples from the costume department and then some art concepts from, from Ra and all of a sudden I was like, oh, everybody's going for, for color. And there were actually materials that were red and they were they had saturated colors. And it wasn't such a desaturated world that, that we, we thought it was. And that actually helped us to, to gradually go to a colder look towards the end of the movie because it was it was a, a long discussion about uh, the need to show the passage of time and to show different seasons but but also I think the smoke from the explosions and everything else kind of helped us to go that that route and uh, it's it's a nice contrast from the beginning to to the end yeah well I feel like the transition in the visual style from the beginning to the end, Aside from showing the passage of time, it also does a nice job of kind of putting you inside Jojo's head and sort of as he grows. And that was another thing I really liked about the movie is I felt like you guys found a great way of, without it being overtly obvious, I mean, I'm not even sure how you did it exactly. You really put the audience in a position where you're seeing the world through a child's eyes. And I was curious how you did that. I, I think uh, many people would think like, oh, I, I really need to to show the kids POV and then try to exaggerate it so the audience gets that impression. It's like, oh yeah, the story is being told through through the kids' eyes. But I think our our approach was uh, we knew that we have so many other elements to do that. So I think the only thing we did was a lot of times, even when we were rehearsing, just like try to just bend down and see how the world looks from. <laughs> that perspective and that was all like you don't need a tiny hand in front of the camera and you don't need to show it that that much like the audience will, will get it and i think having all the other elements and the dialogue and, and costumes and, and all that we, we piled up everything and kind of it it came to it came together and but it's so interesting because i think the advantage of of having the the stage was that and having that we we built pretty much all the interior for Jojo's house. And what was great about that was the, that we had uh, that location available to us from like the moment the first two walls were <laughs> propped up. So we had time to, to, to rehearse, but also to pre-light and just to see how the space looks and to see how it gets built and how it, it gets dressed and moving lamps around and, and, and all that. So Well, and I also liked in those scenes that you shot the the scenes where he's talking to his imaginary friend hitler uh fairly realistically like you didn't do anything to overly stylize it and i'm curious if there were ever those kinds of conversations of like you know if you're if it's an imaginary friend do you make it more you know what i'm saying like it 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 feels very not self-conscious or and you don't veer into fantasy which i liked and i'm Wondering what kind of conversations you had about that. I think the only conversation we had, and I think it's it's true to, is it's like for a kid, an imaginary friend is as real as it gets. You know, and I, th- I think it was also maybe uh, trying not to, because uh, I think if we would do any any sort of like weird visual artifact to to show his imaginary, <laughs> like would probably, uh, I don't think like the audience would perceive it as 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 it is now, where it's like. I mean, it's like looking at my kids and like from Taika as well. It was just like kind of that idea. It's like, no, it's an imaginary friend, but it's 
as real as it mm-hmm. can be. Circling back to something you said at the beginning of the conversation, when you said you did pretty extensive camera tests and tried out a lot of different things, um, what cameras did you test and what did you learn from the tests and what cameras did you end up actually shooting the movie with? Uh, I mean, uh, camera-wise, uh, because we had this idea of trying 133, um, we kind of narrowed down everything. I think we, we tried the LF uh, only for um, half a day and then realized like all the interesting lenses that we, they, we wanted to test won't actually cover that as much as we were hoping for um, but uh, knowing that we want 133 and of course cropping from from any um, other sensor would, would like would make us lose so much information we kind of narrowed down to, to an Alexa XT or SXT or an Alexa mini that will give us the 4x3 to start with Vantage has another flavor uh, I think the, the, the vintage V lights and for, for us, those lacked a little bit too much contrast. So we kind of wanted for, to go for a more luster <laughs> look. Um, but it was more about seeing certain situations and trying to see uh, how we can frame two people having a conversation. And then testing different, different materials, different shears, different, different things. But it wasn't necessarily choosing a camera platform. We kind of decided on the Alexa to start with. I know you, in between your films, you know, you were mentioning to me before we started talking that you shoot a lot of commercials and things like that. I mean, do you use commercials as a kind of research and testing ground to figure out things that you want to use on your features? Yeah, and I mean, a lot of times, uh, I remember when the, the, the Panavision DXL came out, uh, I did a few days of testing and then I jumped into a commercial with it, with the 1.3s uh, from Panavision. Um, and like everybody loved the, the the look of it, but that commercial, the look of it actually served uh, for um, for the hate you give. Like George Tillman saw the, I showed him the commercial, and he was like, "Yeah, I just let's go DXL with those lenses. It looks great. It's like you can tell the story that way." So a lot of times, it's it, it's very easy to to show somebody something. And it's better than showing them a test. I think camera testing is great, but if you have a final product, if you, even if it's only thirty seconds or one minute, it, it's it's way different than 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 doing a test. You mentioned earlier also the that you know one of the photo still photos you had gave you an idea for the double doors, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your collaboration with the production designer on the sets on this movie. I mean, did the two of you work together closely to make sure that the sets would facilitate whatever you wanted to do in terms of the lighting? Yeah, we. I mean, we had the offices. Our offices were next to each other, which was great because I like printing and putting stuff up on the walls. And of course, he does that. And we're just popping into each other's office. And it's like, oh, you got that? That's nice. And all all that type of, of thing. In a way, I'm such a technical person that with Taika, for example, the first time I knew we we're, were gonna get along when I saw him using a, a Hasselblad X Pen, and I have the same camera. I was like, ah, okay, that will. And and the reason for that is that 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 camera is is, is like a, a wide panoramic that shoots on on two frames and. Because of that, if you are using that camera, you, that means you're you're like really aware of your horizon, and you, and that's something that we both discovered very early on that we're both we like symmetry and we really like our horizons to be perfectly. 
Yeah, that leads me to another question about your collaboration with Taika, because I do feel like this movie has very precise symmetrical compositions. And I'm wondering, how much do the two of you plan that out ahead of time? In other words, do you storyboard? Do you shot list? Are you responding more to what's on the day? How do you... No, we, it was a very interesting process, but I think it, it paid off because we did some storyboards, and uh, but those were mainly for the for the war scenes, for the battle scenes in the end. Uh, and it was just because there were so many moving parts and we, we had to figure out where everything is. But for everything else, it was rehearsing, blocking, and shooting. But what's interesting about it, when you have enough prep and you, when you when you go through so many visuals and, and when you're there and you're testing and you do all that, I think what's interesting about that is that you end up establishing a few rules and those will serve you later. And what's great about rehearsing and blocking and then shooting, especially when you work with young actors, uh, when you don't have to tell them, it's like, oh, you better be there because otherwise you're out of your light and you give them the freedom of being whatever they feel they will naturally be, like you get so much more out of that performance and you get actually better ideas about about everything. Like th there is one scene between, like in, in Elsa's bedroom between Jojo and, and Elsa and like, Roman went and like he sat in, in, in a place where like from my perspective during the rehearsal I could see the, the three mirrors and they could see Elsa reflected in, in that and I'm like that's perfect why would I ask you to be anywhere else in terms of coming up with rules or maybe another word you know just sort of principles during your prep what were some of the other principles or you know guiding rules you had in terms of visual style and or, or the lighting approach uh we 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 knew definitely that we wanted to stay away from handheld and we felt that it wasn't appropriate and we wanted a more classic look that there was one of oh, one of the rules the other was to try uh, a lot to be kind of lower kind of from from roman's perspective but not force it that much uh, we knew we liked symmetry and we were trying to to create symmetrical framings as much as we as we could and um, we were talking about like doing moves like dolly moves or certain type of camera moves uh, only when we, we feel they mean something um, and it's interesting like we we kind of nailed down all these rules and like things that we like and we don't and things that might work but it, it's funny how, like, when I realized that we are on the same page and we like the same things, because I remember one of the things was, uh, I think, day one or day two, when we spoke, we, we rehearsed, we blocked it, and we both said, like, oh, yeah, the, uh, a wide angle will work here. And, like, I put the wide lens and looked through it, and in my mind, I was like, ah, oh, it doesn't look right. And half a second later, I see Taika popped in as he looks at me, and I was like, we're too wide, right? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> and then you realize, like, okay, we, we definitely are on the same page and we, we like the same thing. And he has a, a really interesting way. Like, I remember in the when we were, we were pre-lighting for Jojo's bedroom and uh, I think we're, like, really early on and I had only one light coming through the window and everything was off. And I hear Taika just on the hallway, and like, he pops his head. He's like, you're nowhere. You know you're shooting a comedy, right? <laughs> it was like, yeah. It was, it was really... <laughs> Well, something else that's cool about the movie is that the cinematography and the costume design really work well together. I mean, the interesting thing about the costumes in this movie is that they don't just tell you something about the character and they don't just add to the kind of 
visual texture of the movie. I mean, they're actually story elements. I mean, they, there, there are moments in the film where the costumes kind of tell you very important things. I mean, I don't want to give too much away here for people who haven't seen the movie, but uh, you, as you're, in terms of your compositions and where you put your camera, you kind of draw attention to, for example, uh, Scarlett Johansson's shoes in a way that pays off very importantly late in the movie. And uh, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about what your thinking was there. That particular one, like I remember talking about it with, with Taika and like, yeah, it's really important that the audience know those are her shoes. And that's why like certain things we had to frame that way and just emphasize the, the shoes for that. But on the other hand, like uh, there were scenes that were written that way, like with, with her dancing on the, on the, on the small ledge you know, that, that was written that way. Mm-hmm. Well, that leads me to another question, which is, you know, again, I've talked a little bit here about how unusual the tone of the movie is and how delicate it is where it's, you know, comic. It moves from comedy to tragedy to, you know, then it becomes kind of almost an action movie at a couple places and things like that. And for you as a cinematographer, I mean, do you worry about that tonal balance or is that something that you feel like is more the work has been done in the script by Taika? I would have probably be very uh, worried about if I would have not known like Taika's other movies and his approach to, to storytelling. It's always a matter of trusting <laughs> the, your collaborators and trusting the director and uh, like no, I, I knew right away it's like okay that's that's his style that's exactly how, how he likes to tell a story and I never doubt that everything will, will work. You mentioned giving the actors uh, freedom in terms of the way they use the space and uh, the kid who plays Jojo is incredible. He's like one of a really great child actor. But um, how do you see your job in terms of facilitating the best work from the actors? I mean, what kind of environment do you try to set up? And is it different when you have younger actors? I mean, do you feel more of a responsibility to kind of give them even more freedom than you might give people who are doing I mean, it longer? Initially, that's what I thought it would be. And I was like, okay, it's like he's, he's a really young kid. Like he, it's, it's his first big movie and we'll see what 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 will, what will happen but then when i realized like he grew up around cameras and i know with, with my kids i'm photographing them daily so uh that actually i think that helped so much because he was never i never had a problem with him like peeking through the like in, into the lens or or just being self-conscious of like oh that are like two giant cameras pointing at me like he never had that that issue and it was like the level of professionalism of professionalism and like the fact that like he knew his lines really well and he was just like trying to figure out how to to make the scene work even better but like everything was was great a lot of times yeah there are moments where you're you're thinking like within the space you know kind of how you you would like to light it and like sometimes you're like oh my god i wish they'll never get go there really close to that point. but when they do if you embrace it you end up with something even better than you thought at the beginning and it's more real for the characters so i think that that helps well, since you mentioned having two big cameras on i mean how many cameras were you generally shooting with and 
How many cameras do you like to shoot with? Two. I mean, it's always tricky to to add another camera. And that was one of the first things I remember. We were like both Taika and I were like, yeah, we'll just be single camera, single camera. And then we realized like we we're just looking at the schedule and the amount of work we had every day. We were like, oh, maybe it's not the best idea. And then I mean, I think I think you can shoot two cameras without compromising too much lighting wise, as as long as you. You come up with a set of rules and like I, I think if you decide not to force it and if for some reason like you end up looking at the at both monitors and it's like okay it's a compromise for both angles might as well just shoot one camera if you if you go by that rule and don't try to force it and then then you can get amazing stuff if you shoot on the same direction one a little tighter and one wider you don't want to go too wide and too tight in the same time but there is a, a, a way where if you meet in the middle, you end up getting really valuable footage. Aside from the symmetrical compositions and the very classical approach, I mean, it's got a really crisp, sharp look, which I loved. I mean, were you using any kind of filtration or diffusion at all in the movie? No, I mean, I very rarely use some diffusion, like classic soft or black setting. But with the anamorphic lenses, you almost don't don't need it. So not not really, other than some... ND grads and, and diopters sometimes. What was the philosophy in this movie in terms of visual effects and how did you work with the effects department to build a kind of seamless marriage? There are so many moments where we, we wanted to enhance the background and, and even if it was more like uh, set extensions. We shot, for example, all the battle scenes that were in what it used to be a factory. They were just like the ruins of a factory. So that was amazing for us to be able to do all crazy explosions and all that but uh, there was nothing around it so it was a lot of times where just like by placing a 20 by green screen just doing sad extension and sometimes you see that and it ties really well with the two little towns we, we shot in there are so many things but i think that's what's interesting about vfx is that when it's not up your face and it's like they're really subtle and still there's something there that's, that makes the shot better and that's that's the best use of, of the vfx i think where did you do the post work, the DI and uh, uh, Company Three? And did you do anything? Uh, what kind of things did you do in post to manipulate the look? It might sound strange, but the way I got used to it, and when I, I realized how much you can do with a digital camera if you have the right tools and the right collaborators, ninety-nine percent of the time I'll try as much as I can to travel with my DIT, and I've been working with with him for. 10 years now. Eli Berg is his name and he's like, he knows things that I like and I, I hate and so there's a fair amount of work that we do on set by, not by just adjusting slightly color temps and all that, but by creating CDLs and come up with looks that uh, in the end they'll be very close and it's also there, what's, what's really interesting about it is that you don't want the, the director to end up in the editing room and look at something that's not or it's really far away from what it will end up being so we're trying to do uh, as much work from that perspective so we have really nice dailies and in the eye i worked with tim Stipa and i uh, he he was my colorist for uh, walk among the tombstones as well so we knew each other and you know, we, we knew things we we liked so it was just finalizing that whole process and make things even better than we could on, on set.
when did you see the movie for the first time with an actual audience and what was that experience like? Uh, Toronto. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was the first time with an audience. How did they respond and were there things that surprised you about the response? No, I mean, what was really interesting because I think the, the movie is so packed with, with little uh, interesting pieces and, and they reacted like spot on to every single one of them. And I thought that was that was amazing. As we wrap up here, I, I, I want to ask a little bit sort of a broader question about what you look for in projects and collaborators, because you were fortunate enough to do uh, those very interesting films with Coppola early in your career. And since then, you know, you've gravitated toward a lot of bold movies with bold collaborators, you know, I mean, the master and, and things like that. What motivates your choices and where do you see your career going from here? I don't know if it's good or bad, but like I hate when, when people are saying like, oh, okay, that cinematographer is good at that. Like, no, I think we we can all do different things. And my my biggest fear is to, to be kind of in a category <laughs> like where it's like I can do only that really well. And that's why I like to try to do different things every time and, and try to see where where those will, will get me. But I guess every every project I've done so, so far had an interesting challenge to, to and different than the other one, which was great. And an even broader question, I guess, to kind of finish things off is I'm curious how you sort of see where you see cinematography going right now. I mean, when I was in film school, uh, it, you know, month to month, it didn't change that much. It was like you learned whatever was how movies were shot on celluloid and there were minor technological movements or transformations. But like now, I mean, I feel like in a month or two, more happens than used to happen in several years in terms of the changing technology and cameras and everything and new, new lighting tools, everything else. I mean, What's it like to be a cinematographer in that environment? Where do you see it all going? I remember when I was a kid, I heard something like, oh, don't be a doctor because you'll have to learn all your life. It's like kind of pretty much where we are now. It's like, oh, I heard that two months from now there will be a new camera. It's all in this stuff. But I, I enjoy it. And I mean, what's, what's, what I think is really interesting about it because, yeah, when I was in the film school, you had like three options right. of, of uh, shooting film. And... Um, now what's really interesting is that the audience has all a lot of tools and a lot of cheap tools to experiment so they become more aware of like how how what it takes to create an interesting image so i think that's that's the most interesting part of of, of all and the, the fact that we have so many tools that we can play with uh, well thanks so much for talking with me today Mihai. i really uh, appreciate it and it's a really it's a really interesting movie for sure so. thanks for having me yeah my pleasure The American Cinematographer Podcast is a production of the American Society of Cinematographers. It is produced by David E. Williams, Samantha Dillard, and Matt Newman. This episode was edited by Samantha Dillard. Audio was provided by David Williams. Research by interviewer Jim Hemphill. And special thanks to Mihai Malamari Jr., Fox Searchlight Pictures, and 42 West. Opening and closing titles are narrated by John Simmons, ASC. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. For your complete cinematography resource, visit ASCMag.com and subscribe to American Cinematographer Magazine.